good morning again. <clears throat> Voice is struggling a little bit this morning. So, so Britta and I, <clears throat> in our marriage, I'm letting you in on, our, on the depths of our marriage craziness, we have this phrase that we, every once in a while, use with one another, and we call it, we say 30,000 words. Be in the midst of, usually, she'll be talking about something, um, and uh, as you know, you know, there's all kinds of comedy out there about how many words in a given day men versus women use, and so she'll be talking, and eventually, I'll, I'll get to the point in my head where I'm like, there's a point here. And in about 16 minutes, I think we're going to get to it. And so I'll say something like, Britta, 30,000 words. And she'll skip to the, to the part that is significant, right? And now before you think I'm throwing her under the bus, this isn't a one-way street. Like, we both do it. We just do it with things that we're passionate about, right? So for me, I'll be droning on about something with, you know, technology or, you know, today I was thinking about microphones. And then I watch this video and I learn about RF signals. And, and she'll look at me and she'll 30,000 words. Tell me the thing that matters, right? All of us have those things we're excited about, right? There's, and a lot of times what happens is they don't always line up. So you'll be talking to somebody about something that really jazzes you, and it's not necessarily super jazzing to them, and so they just really want you to get to the stinking point, right? We've all been there. But we love to talk about things. At this point in the book of Ephesians, we're getting to the point with Paul, where we're kind of ready to say, Paul, 30,000 words, right? We get it. Gospel, community, unity, right? Gentiles, Jews, everybody included, one happy family singing Kumbaya. We, we understand the, the theology of it. We understand what it means. He's expounded the gospel. And by the way, this isn't his first letter, right? It's not even just Ephesians. This is the, this kind of the same pattern of every letter that Paul writes. There's this huge recounting of the entire gospel. And he said, and this is what the gospel is. And then chapter 2 comes. And it's like the same thing again and again and again. And so now we're, we're at the end of, the, we're in the halfway point. We finished chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you might be saying, Paul, 30,000 words. I'm a doer. Just tell me what to do. I get it. The gospel has come. It changes all things. What do I actually do here? And the good news is that we're there. We're at that point in Ephesians where we get to kind of move from the, the theology, philosophical, 30,000-foot view down to the what do we actually do with this. The whole first set is the thinking. The whole second set of chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the doing. And one of the cool things is that immediately when we get to Ephesians 4, right off the bat in the very beginning, we, we start to see Paul get straight to the point. We've earned Paul getting straight to the point at this point. And so here starts with 4.1. Let's read just the first couple, six verses. And I'm going to give you a caveat. Today I'm not going to make you stand up because we're going to read a little bit and then talk a little bit and then read a little bit and then talk a little bit. And we'll start to feel a little bit Catholic if we have like more than six up-downs in any given service. So I think today I'm going to let you sit don't think it's a habit. We're not Presbyterians. We have to do it three times before it becomes a habit. So we can get away with anything once, maybe even twice. So here's the words of Ephesians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is just the opening of the chapter. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So Paul's instructions are really blunt and simple. Because of all the things we talked about, right? I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, because of all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, here's what you need to do. You just need to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, Jesus died and raised you to life. Now act like it. You want instructions? You want to know what to do? Just act like it. Act like a people who have been raised to life by Christ as you go about the business of this world while you're still in it, right? We are these already but not yet in this world but not of it. Act a little bit like you're in the world but not of it. It's like walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have been called to. Notice, it's already happened. He's saying, look, Jesus gives you a new identity. We're not asking you to do something radical here. We're just asking you to actually live... The identity. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he gives us a couple little kind of means, very rough overarching means as to how we do that. And he mentions things like you should have humility and you should have a a gentleness with patience, right? Which if you have kids is really, really hard. You should bear with one another in love. You should be eager to maintain unity of the spirit. You should be seeking after things like peace. And if you notice, most of these are simple But most of these are also pretty radically countercultural things. Like, you might look at this list and be like, well, yeah, peace is good. But but most of the things that we just talked about are not things that we see in the everyday life of the culture. If we actually lived as people who were humble, gentle, patient, bore with one another in love, tried to maintain unity, and we always sought after peace over all the other things, you would look so strange to the world that we're in today It'd stick out like a sore thumb. And so God has always operated this way with his people. And this is something really important. When he says, live in a manner of the calling that you've been called, what he's really saying is, live counterculturally. And from the very beginning of God calling his people, that's what we've been asked to do. Because what God wants in us is for us to seem different than the sinful world that we're in. When he first calls the people out of Egypt, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he gives them the the crazy amount of different food laws and all these things, and they weren't really designed to be, like, shellfish is actually unholy, right? The idea was, there's cultures out there that eat this, I want you to look different. When you walk around, I want you to stick out like a sore thumb in the world in which we are. That was the point of most of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Not the only point, but one of them, right? We are to look different than the culture around us. The call that Paul gives us here in light of the gospel isn't really all that different. He says, look, this is the way the world looks. We're going to do things a little differently. God is calling you to be patient. Well, if I'm patient, then I might not get justice. Okay. Didn't Jesus die for that so that you didn't have to worry about it, right? If I, if I walk in humility, people might trample all over me. And so the world tells me to stand up for myself and to not worry about being humble. And sometimes you just got to puff yourself up and, and push out your chest and show people who's boss. Hasn't the Lord taken care of that for you? Do you not trust that he 
orchestrator of the entire universe can somehow handle that if you just agree to listen and walk in the manner in which you have been called. Right? That's what he's saying here. Now, Paul commands the New Testament people really to do the same thing than God commanded the Old Testament people to do, to live in a manner which makes it obvious to the world that we're different. How do we do that? There's kind of the, the, the countercultural way that that's Paul's answer here it begs the question of how do we actually do this in, in various ways. And one of the neat things about the rest of Ephesians is it actually splices this out into a couple different examples. And so what we see is in the next three chapters, in the next three weeks that we'll be in Ephesians until we're done, uh, it splits out different aspects in which we do that in the world in which we live. And so chapter 4 primarily deals with how this looks in the life of the church and kind of the, the Christian everyday general life, right? It's going to say, look, how do we look different as Christians? How do we use this, the church, to be that in the community, to be this difference-making kind of entity? How do we look different than everybody else? Then he gets a little bit to the how do we as individuals in our everyday life look different. And then in chapter 5... He's going to get into the topic of marriage. That's a pretty controversial chapter. We're going to look at that next week. And he's going to point out to us how marriage, the very idea of marriage and what it is and, and all that was created by God to actually accomplish this purpose of looking different right, to the world around us. And then in chapter 6, he's going to talk about the, kind of the broader family, children. He's going to get into some, some ideas of like slaves and masters. And we don't think of that in terms of like the modern day slavery concept, right? It's a whole different kind of thing. And we'll talk about that two weeks from now. But what happens is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 just tells us, live in a manner of the, of the calling that you've been called. And here's how you do it in the church. Here's how you do it in life. Here's how you do it in marriage. Here's how you do it with your kids. Here's how you do it as a, as a servant or a master. You can think of that as maybe employee or employer, right? People that are in authority over you and people that are in authority under you and those kinds of things. And he kind of gives us these snapshots of, look, the Lord gives us these kind of institutions and ways of living and family and work and, and offspring. And, and in all these ways, this is how we walk in the manner. And so this morning, we're going to look at the church and the individual. And for that, let's keep reading a little bit further on, Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. It continues like this. If I can find it. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. We'll stop right there. I know it's the middle of a sentence, right? Paul, Paul makes clear that God gives grace to all people, and then he goes on this kind of tangent as he does about the Lord descending and ascending. Well, actually, he, he descended first and then he ascended and he kind of gives us this little parentheses aside. But really, the point of this so far is, look, grace is given to all people, but God also calls some to very specific type of tasks. He calls them to very specific 
Christian type of ministry contexts, right? And so he gives us all kinds of different characters. And what does he say? He says apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Essentially, what it comes down to is this. The Lord calls all of us. He gives us all grace. And then some of us have a a special calling to fill these kind of roles of prophet, teacher. Today, we would think of it as the Lord calls all of us under his name. He has given grace to each and every one of us in this room. Some of us he calls to be preachers and teachers and elders and deacons and and leaders within the church context, right? And and that sounds so far so good to us. Nothing really countercultural like that. The church has always had leaders of some kind, all the way from the Pope and those who are underneath him and the priests and now to where we have the Reformation and each church is different. You might have a board, you might have elders, you might have, you know, whatever the names are. Maybe you have a church where the pastor's in charge. That simultaneously sounds kind of nice but also really terrifying to me, right? I don't want to be the only guy in charge. Partially so you don't get to blame me for everything, right? But, but we don't, we don't, whatever we call it, that's kind of normal to us. We expect to come to a church, and usually if you're visiting a place, at some point you want to ask who are its leaders, and so far, so good. But then comes verse 12, and verse 12 hits a little different. Let's start at 11 again, but we'll go, into, we'll go into 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Then each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 12 hits hard. It might not seem like it. So the calling of these evangelists, these teachers, these elders, these deacons, these whatever, all these positions in the church, their calling isn't to do the work of ministry, but rather their calling is, don't miss miss this, this is really important, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints is you, all of you. That's really important. So my role, the elder's role, the deacon's role, isn't so much to do ministry, although it is as people, as individuals, but not in any kind of special, unique way. It's to equip and empower, to call, to exhort you to do the work of ministry. Did you know you were ministers? Every one of you. Like, really? This is, that's not a word-mincing thing. Right? I'm not talking about a legal, ordained type of scenario where you're able to participate in doing things like weddings, funerals, and, and the Lord's table, and, and all those kinds of things. But you're ministers. If you're in this room and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're a minister in the world in which we live. That's, that's crazy, right? And, and, and to what end, really, do we, do we do this thing? To build up the body of Christ until everybody is under the unity of of faith and the knowledge of God. So you're supposed to be ministers, and you're supposed to minister until that happens fully, 
Everyone in the world is under the knowledge and the faith and the unity of, of God. This is a, a radical departure from what the church has been for centuries, even millennia. Almost every church out there today operates in a way that we think of as staff-driven. Right? The staff puts together programs. We might call on some of you guys to volunteer to bring some candy in every once in a while. But the staff generally does the programming, and then people come to those programs, and then they hear the pastor preach, and they come to know Jesus, and maybe they come to a Bible study, and then they start to participate, and after a couple of years, maybe they become an, an elder themselves, and that's kind of the cycle. But that's not what the church is supposed to be. You are the ministers. We are to equip you for that calling and for that work. Now, for years, here's the thing. This staff-driven model has worked really well in the church because Christianity was a cultural thing. Right? It was assumed that you went to a church in the culture in which we lived. You were kind of the weird one if you were out there you know, running or doing something else on a Sunday morning. People were like, why aren't you going to church? We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. So we could have staff offer programs and people would come. Today, the idea of somebody just walking into a church out of the, out of the blue, it, it happens, but it happens like once every seven years maybe. It's not common as we think it might be, as it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Right? I don't know if you've noticed, we live in a culture that really could care less about what we do in here on Sunday mornings. They're not even, it's not even a matter of they don't care or they're angry. They're not even thinking about it. Like, there are people out there on bikes this morning that the idea of church hasn't even crossed their mind. They're not feeling guilty about not being in church because they haven't thought about church. It's so foreign to them. And so Paul is saying here that the way the church has operated for so long was always wrong to begin with. It worked because cultural Christianity was a thing, but that didn't make it right. Discipleship, evangelism, conversion, all of those things happen under your work as the ministers of the church, the saints whom God has called to be his witness in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Christians, we're to be out in the world sharing the gospel within all kinds of places, our schools, our workplaces, our social circles, everywhere we go, we're supposed to be intentional about it, constantly bringing the gospel to bear. When you're out there, people should know you as something different. And how do we do that? Through the traits that Paul lists in the beginning in verses 2 and 3. Humility, gentleness, patience, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. If we do all these things, you're going to look different in the world, and they're going to ask you why. We're supposed to be radically about doing this with our neighbors. Do you realize that in your neighborhood where you live, you should have an evangelism strategy? Like you should be treating this in a way like you treat your job. Who are my neighbors? Who do I know? Who do I not yet know? How can I get to know them? How can I radically start to demonstrate love in my neighborhood? What is something I could do? It's almost like your neighborhood, your front or backyard, almost ought to be a microchurch. And your neighborhood's your congregation. And you're the minister. That's how it's supposed to be. We should demonstrate this radically different way of doing life under Christ. And it should contrast with how the world looks at things. And I want you to hear this as clearly as possible. 
This isn't me or elders or anybody trying to skirt some responsibility. This is us just trying to, to do what the church is always meant to do. Unless and until the body of Christ, not pastors, not deacons, staff, but the body, you, right? And me, insofar as I'm a, I'm a person that comes here, not as the pastor, but all of us. Unless and until we, and unless and until we begin to take seriously the role of discipleship and evangelism in our spheres, unless and until we begin to see ourselves as the primary means of people coming to Christ and then to church, not the other way around, unless you and I begin to see that, we as a church will never see people coming to Christ or growing, or us as a church growing, in any meaningful way. You won't. Unless we get to a point where that's the mentality that we adopt, that you are the minister's, and this church is a place where you come and, and elders and teachers and leaders and deacons love and equip you and we equip each other together so that we can go out and actually minister. As long as you expect that the staff will do the ministering out there, I'm going to tell you we're not going to grow. And in 10, 15 years, you're going to wonder what happened. I promise you that. It will not happen because it's not the way the church is designed. It's not the way it was in the early church. They didn't come because the band was awesome. They came because the Christians who were part of the church went out into their neighborhoods and invited people for dinner and, and, and radically lived different until someone finally asked them why. And then they shared the gospel and they came to know Christ and they uh, taught them how to read scripture and introduced them to various resources and they got to know Jesus more and they eventually said, I want to go to this church thing that you go to. And they said, okay, come on. And they came and, and then they were baptized there and the spirit came upon them and then new life happened and it exploded. And that's how thousands of people were being saved. And quite, quite frankly, the, the church growing is really not the concern here. The reality is I'm more worried about people knowing the kingdom of God and who he is and the hope and the life that they have in him. We are the ones who are going to go out and do that. It's not going to be some session initiative, right? It's you. It cannot wait and will not happen this way because it was never designed to be that way. Paul is telling us in Ephesians how the pattern of growth. We have all these books about church growth out there, and they're all hogwash. All we got to do is look at Paul in Ephesians 4. Here's the growth strategy. Your ministers, your elders, your apostles, your, your teachers, your preachers, all these people equip the saints in every way they can, and they then go out and do the ministry and the work of bringing people unto Christ. And then the people come. From the very beginning of God raising the church, the saints were the growth strategy. You're it, guys. If you want to know what, do your, what are your elders going to do about growing this church, they're going to look to you and say, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is because Jesus is not the high priest anymore. Or Jesus is now our high priest, right? In the Old Testament, you needed mediation through the priest. You don't need it anymore. We're all saints. What does Paul say? Go and act like it. Act in the manner that you have been called. Right? The second half of Ephesians 4 deals with the individual Christian self. Right? So we, as a church body, this is what's important, but as for the self, here's how the gospel kind of ought to change and shape the way you function. And he starts in verse 17 by, again, drawing a bit of a cultural comparison. So let's read that. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in the understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and taught him as the truth in Jesus. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where he gets into that old self, new self that we prayed about earlier today. We see how much of Christian life was designed to look intentionally different from culture. In verse 22, he exhorts us to literally take off the old and put on the new. He's saying, look, do you want to know as a Christian how do you live? There's there's a way that the Gentiles walked. And in this case, he's not talking about Gentiles versus Jews. He's talking about non-Christians versus Christians. You want to know how to live as a Christian? Look at the world. It's a mess. Everybody's self-seeking, self-indulgent, self-righteous. If you want to know how to walk in a manner of the calling you've been called, counter-cultural living. You will not be this way. What if I don't get justice? The Lord is your justice. What if I don't get by? The Lord is your provision. What if I get trampled on? The Lord will raise you up on the last day. We live differently. And then he closes the chapter by elaborating a little bit about what this looks like. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being honest with his work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The key here is to live in a manner worthy of the calling. And to do that, we have to give up some cultural things about how the world operates. It's a list of behaviors, and it's, it's really, this list is, again, entirely contrary to what the culture tells us. Culture doesn't speak the truth, but it lies to get ahead. Do we, do we lie to get ahead? Do we bend the truth in order to get what we need in any given moment? No, we are radically truthful. We are so about making sure that the truth always prevails, that we don't care if it affects us in any way. The truth will set us free is a thoroughly Christian principle. Culture doesn't act as if we all belong to one another. It prioritizes the self. Everything in our culture is about self-exhortation and self-expression and and me living my truth and in my way and my power, right? Me, 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 I, I, I. Our culture sounds like a selfish toddler. And we kind of jump right in there with it. Culture steals and doesn't labor honestly. I had a, a, a friend who worked, uh, it was a church that I used to go to, and he was an insurance salesman. And one of the things he started doing when he, when he came to know Christ is he, he drafted a, a Christian mission statement that he would give to any new clients that came in. And essentially, it was a, look, 
Because I am a Christian, I am compelled because of that, not because it's good for business, not because of anything, but because I'm a Christian, I'm compelled to, to act in a way that is constantly truthful. So I'm going to give you truthful advice, even if it costs me commissions. Like, you can count on the fact that when you come in here, I, I can't act in any other way because Christ compels me to that. His business quadrupled. He said, no, I'm not going to sneak or shove in something you don't need or try to lead you in a way that gets me a bigger commission that kind of serves you but not as well as it could have. I'm going to give you the best advice all the time, even if it costs me part of the business. And when he did that, man, it just took off. Now, am I saying that that will always happen to you too? No, you might lose some business. Right? Culture corrupts all the time. And culture tears down to build up the self in the individual rather than laying down the self in order to build up the communal. That's what Christian culture does. We take the self and we lay it at the altar so that the community flourishes. And if you live that way, if you just adopt those simple principles, you will look so different in this world. You'll be like a juicy steak. Jesus doesn't say we're the salt of the earth by accident. We're actually supposed to bring in the flavor. Right? That's how we are called to live. Counter-culturally. Totally different. And second, this list is epically more appealing than what's currently in the world. Right? The world doesn't know that it needs or lacks these things. It's so consumed with itself that when it encounters this kind of radical level of, of honesty, truth-seeking, of humility, of a willingness to own our faults and to confess and to be, to be so different, it, it really doesn't even know what to do with that other than ask, what is going on? And that opens the door for us to say stuff, right? All the things Paul and God through him are asking us here are about bringing God's kingdom to this earth. Do you see that? Like, God made you new, the gospel happened, Jesus died, you have a newness of life. The things that Paul is talking about here, they might as well be descriptions of heaven. Well, I don't know about you, Vince, but the world that I see doesn't look anything like that, and it's really hard to be that way. Well, yeah, because it's foreign. What Paul is actually doing here is he's saying, look, because Jesus died, like, the, the kingdom of heaven that is being ushered in, like, that's what, that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to take the kingdom of heaven and start to like pull it down and give the world glimpses of it until it's actually fully here. Right? You're supposed to be a heaven sneak preview everywhere you go. And so here in four, he tells us how to do it in the life of the church and in the life of the individual. Next week, we're going to look at how we are to do that and live that out in a context of marriage for those of us who are married. And if you're not married, please come. You learn some principles too. Uh, for either A, if you remain single, or if you someday get married, right? But the Lord actually gives marriage as an institution to us as a gift in order to accomplish the thing that Paul is trying to tell us to accomplish here. And then he gives us kids and family and slaves and masters and all those things for the same exact reason. And so we'll see kind of how the gospel bears light on those things as we go in the next two weeks. But for now, just know the question that we have to ask is, do you see the gospel in this way? Does it alter your very essence, your fabric of being, so that you might walk worthy in the manner of the calling to which you have been called? If so, my prayer 
is that our lives might reflect this glorious reality as his kingdom comes to this earth by his power using us to accomplish that mission. Let's pray. God, we, sometimes we don't even know how to live in this reality, Lord. You make us new, you restore us, you, you tell us you're ushering in your kingdom, and then you invite us to be the people that pull the rope in a way. We pray that you would equip us and shape us. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your truth when this gets hard. Lord, when you're calling us to be humble in a scenario where we really want to put our foot down, we pray that we might have trust in you, that you'll take care of things. When we're in a scenario where we want to be angry with someone because they thoroughly deserve it, we pray that we might be able to lay down our anger, not because it's wrong, but because you call us to something different, because you call us to offer a forgiveness that mirrors your forgiveness of us. Lord, when this world causes us to suffer, we pray that we might have a gentleness and a patience that people can't understand, that we might trust that you are the one that is holding all things together and that we'll be raised someday, no matter how bad it gets. Be with us as we live this reality out. And Lord, we long for the day where your kingdom is fully here, where there's no dichotomy between you and, and your kingdom and the culture because they become one and the same and we just get to live in the beauty and the resurrection of it all. We love you and we praise you. And all those people said, Amen.